let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. And we'll actually back up a little bit into chapter 29 to get us started this morning. Back to verse 31 in chapter 29. Now, as we move through our text this morning, we're going to get a good glimpse of the humanness of these characters. Um, It's just so evident with how we see Jacob, Leah, and Rachel all interacting with each other. Very human, you know? And this is also a great case study of polygamy. If you ever wonder what polygamy would be like, here you go. We're going to see that. It's not very pretty. We see from the very outset of this arrangement that jealousy runs rampant through this relationship. And I don't know if Jacob ever intended to actually take more than one wife, because we remember he wanted Rachel, but Laban gave him Leah, and he still wanted Rachel. So it was Laban's fault that he even had multiple wives to begin with, and Laban will make an interesting remark about that later. We'll see. I don't know if Jacob ever intended to take more than one wife, but because of that deception, he did. And this is the situation that he is in now. So let's look up at Genesis 29, 31. And we'll take a look at all of these children of Jacob together. And as we go through this, I'm going to pull up a graphic just for the visual people. It's hard to sometimes sort out all these names and relations. But that should help. Just kind of sort it out if you can see that. Abraham and Isaac only had one son to whom that divine promise was given. But all of Jacob's sons would take part in that divine promise. Jacob's sons would become the progenitors of the promised nation of Israel. And we know that the names of each of his sons would become the names of the tribes of Israel. So keep that in mind as we're going through. That's our context. We're seeing the birth of Israel here. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. You know, right off the bat, she's just vying for Jacob's affection. Leah just so longs for her husband's affection. Then she conceived again. And bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again, and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. So each time, these first three, she's relating to her husband. She says, now he will become attached to me. Now he will love me. He'll pay attention to me. Look what she says the fourth time. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Now she's relating to the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. All of these sons were Leah's. Two of the most notable in this lineup are Levi and Judah. And of course, from Levi would come the priesthood that would officiate at the tabernacle, at the temple. And from Judah would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to me that God chose Leah, the unloved one, the one that was constantly vying for her husband's attention to bring the Messiah into the world. And just like his tendency to not use the firstborn son to bring Christ, this challenges our natural tendencies. We see Rachel as the foremost bride, the most important one, because that's who Jacob loved. God doesn't necessarily see it that way. Esau was the manly man and the firstborn, yet God chose to work through Jacob. And the nation of Israel is small, yet he chose to use them over any number of mighty nations on the earth. 
And I mentioned this last week too, but I wanted to revisit this topic and provide this reference. Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7. That passage shows God's heart in choosing Israel, in working through that unique people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. That's God's, God, that's God's heart in this situation. And 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, brings this concept back to Christ for us. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the key. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He gets the credit for working. It's not because of the size of the nation Israel. It's not because they're mighty, because they're strong. He chose the weak one on purpose so that he gets the glory. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You know, there Paul is saying in a nutshell that we who have been redeemed through Christ have no room to boast unless we're boasting in what the Lord has done. And that's because God has chosen us as broken and shattered vessels to redeem back to himself. We don't bring anything to the relationship except for the broken vessel. He brings everything else. And in order to do that, he used the most unlikely method. The Jews of the first century expected their Messiah to come as this political leader and overthrow the Roman Empire almost immediately. They expected that political liberation. It caught them off guard when Christ came as the suffering servant. That's not the persona they expected. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified. He says, to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. The whole idea of God dying for man is foolishness. It's foolishness. But in reality... It's the power and wisdom of God displayed in the most graphic manner. The death of God for man. So let him who glories glory in the Lord. God chooses the weak of us so he gets the glory. And I believe that's his heart in choosing Leah as well. And Jacob. And the nation Israel. Genesis chapter 30 will continue on with these baby wars. See, they're just going back and forth at each other. They're just trying to have more sons to get more favor from Jacob. And we see a lot of strife come from this. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. If I don't have children for you, what good is my life? And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Jacob is saying, well, this obviously isn't a problem with me. They're popping out of the oven in the other tent. I don't know what this is all about. It's not, not on my end. It must be an issue between you and God that's keeping you from having children. Now, we, we know that that wasn't necessarily true, right? 
So she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear children on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife. And Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Right back to that move that got Sarah and Abraham in so much trouble. Now, to cut them a little bit of slack, do remember that this was a culturally acceptable practice in this day. You could give your handmaid to your husband, and he would have a child with her, and that would legally be your child. So this child that Bilhah is going to bear does legally belong to Rachel. And, you know, just because it was approved in their culture doesn't mean it was approved by God, right? There's plenty of things that our culture approves of that God certainly does not. But you can't help but think back on all of the problems that Abraham and Sarah had, you know, the strife between the husband and wife. Even more so, the strife between Sarah and Hagar and how it really facilitated a favoritism between Abraham's sons. He treated one better than he treated the other. So Bilhah conceived and bore a son on Rachel's behalf, and under this arrangement, the son legally belongs to Rachel and Jacob. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. And here are two more of these tribes of Israel named the sons of Jacob and Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Naphtali's name means wrestling. And that kind of commemorates Rachel's struggle with Leah here. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. Now Leah sees Rachel's maid producing children. She's like, oh, that's a good idea. I can get some more this way. So she gives Zilpah, her maid, to Jacob, and Zilpah begins to bear fruit for Jacob. Maybe we can get his attention this way. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. Now, some have thought that Gad's name means troop. Others think that his name means fortune. I don't know, but I tend to think that fortune makes a little more sense in the context. Behold, a fortune comes. So Gad, fortune, or troop. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. So there's two more tribes now named from Jacob and Zilpah. Gad, and Asher. And I can't help but notice as we go through here that Jacob is not complaining about any of this. He seems to be perfectly content with the arrangements. Um, I don't know what's going on in his mind for real, but there's no complaints recorded, so he's probably fine tent-hopping. Now several years have passed since Reuben's birth, And Reuben, remember, was the firstborn, and he was from Leah. Reuben is now old enough to wander about in a field and gather mandrakes for his mom. And he probably didn't even know what they were for. But, you know, if you see your parents pick a flower, and there's like this one type of flower that they like more than all the others, Even a kid can key in on that, and they'll go and find some of those flowers and bring them back to you as a little present. So I I feel like this is what's going on with Reuben now. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest, 
and found mandrakes in the field, and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, mandrakes were thought to be an aphrodisiac, and they were also thought to help with fertility. And they're sometimes called love apples. So I'm sure these two ladies were absolutely scouring their land for these fruits, these mandrakes. And obviously the hope there was to help them in this arms race. And any advantage they could get, they would definitely take. So Reuben goes out and he gathers his mother these mandrakes, these love apples. And Rachel asks for some of those mandrakes. Okay, this is getting a little spicy here. But she said to her, so Leah says to Rachel, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I mean, this is really like reality TV show drama. She's saying, he was mine first. You know, Jacob married Leah. He was mine first, and you stole him from me. You took him, along with his affection. Now you're going to take these mandrakes that my son brought me? Like, how is this? Why would I give these to you? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So now she strikes a bargain with Leah. You take the man and I'll take the mandrakes. That's the deal. So, verse 16, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. What a way to call your husband home. I've hired you. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived, and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And the name Issachar speaks of hiring or service. Now, just a warning you have to be careful what you name your kids. Because someday they're going to ask you, Mom, why'd you name me Hireling? And you're going to have to have that conversation. Say, your older brother Reuben went out, got some mandrakes. We can all avoid that kind of a situation by naming our kids well. Okay. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And that would be the last of Leah's six sons. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now she definitely had some other daughters in the mix there with the sons, but none of the other daughters are mentioned by name. Dinah is the only one that we have. And that's because she'll be important later. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Joseph's name means he will add or Jehovah has added. Rachel said, the Lord shall add to me another son. And indeed, he will. He will add to her another son, but it won't be for quite a while. And looking at all of these sons, and if you reference the graphic up there, Leah had six of them. We know there's 12 total. Leah had six. Half the tribes come from Leah, the unloved one. Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel only have two sons each, and that makes up the other six. At the time Joseph was born, there would be a lot of little ones running around the camp. I mean, when we say this was an arms race for children, it really was. There were, it was just a few years that all of this took place, and obviously multiple wives could be pregnant at the same time, and it was just rapid fire at this point. Reuben, the firstborn, would have likely been around 12 
by the time that Joseph was born. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service which I have done for you. So Jacob tells Laban he wants to go back to Canaan, back to where his family was. Jacob really has served Laban well during his time in Haran, and he's asking to leave on good terms. He's being really cordial. You know, I've fulfilled my duties to you. Please let me return to my family and to Canaan. And indeed, Jacob has fulfilled all of his obligations and then some. He's served faithfully, and Laban prospered while his flocks were under Jacob's control. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Hmm. This phrase, learned by experience, is informative. The word translated as that phrase, learned by experience, speaks of divination. Really, really interesting. And this tells us that Laban used some sort of divination, soothsaying, fortune-telling, mediumship, etc., something like that. And this was likely a standard practice for him. I'm sure this wasn't the first time that he's done something like this. And we know from the rest of the story that he has idols in his home. So he's definitely an idolater. It's not really surprising that he's also involved in the occult. The most interesting thing, though, about this situation is what Laban learns through his divination. He learns that the Lord is blessing him for Jacob's sake. He has knowledge of the true God, yet he does not like to retain him in his mind. Sound familiar? It should. Romans 1. We'll see here that God actually ends up speaking to Laban. Laban has an encounter with God, yet he still wants his idols back. We'll get to that. Then he, Laban, said, Name me your wages, and I will give it. This approach had worked for him twice so far with each of his daughters, so he figured he would try it again. And take note that Jacob had acted justly each time that Laban told him to name his wages. Jacob was not swindling at this point. He was actually acting fairly. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. For the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he's saying, Laban, like, I have increased your wealth. I've done so much work for you. Can't I just go and provide for my own family now? He really reminds him of the wealth that his management of the flocks had brought to Laban. So he said, what shall I give you? He's sticking to his guns. And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. He didn't want anything that Laban had at that time. Now, this is the one thing that he asked for. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. This is the deal that Jacob proposes to Laban. All the irregularly colored animals 
would be separated from the main herd and he would continue to manage them. He'd continue to manage the solid colored main herd. And as they bred, the solid colored animals bred, and as more irregularly colored animals were born from the solid colored animals, those born irregular colored would be Jacob's wages. Okay? Separation. The spotted and speckled from the pure colored, or the solid colored. He would only take the spotted and speckled that were born from the solid colored herd. Now, if you're familiar with genetics, you know it's not impossible for a solid colored animal to breed with another solid colored animal and produce a speckled animal. Right? That's, there is a certain probability that that would happen. However, we're going to see that God greatly increases that probability. And he absolutely blesses Jacob. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. Laban thinks this is the hottest deal going. And it really is a good deal for him. Jacob seems to stack the odds against himself here and in favor of Laban. Seems like a terrible deal from Jacob's point of view. So he removed that day the male goats. So now Laban is going through, he doesn't trust Jacob. He's going through his herd and separating the speckled from the solid. So that's what we're seeing. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Obviously, an untrustworthy man has trouble trusting others. Laban has trouble trusting Jacob. So Laban walks through his own herd, and he does it himself. He sorts out all these irregularly colored animals. He sends them with his sons three days' journey away from the main flock that Jacob is taking care of. That way there'd be no funny business, no interbreeding between the two herds, no increasing the probability that the solid-colored animals would breed spotted babies. Now, let's read through the end of this chapter, but I want you to come at this considering the possibility that Jacob is not trying to swindle Laban. Consider, consider it as a possibility. Because that's the angle we usually jump to. That Jacob is being extremely deceptive here, and he's manipulating the herd in some way to bring about his gain. But I'll explain, and I hope that you'll see why Jacob seems to be treating Laban fairly, or at least not trying to be overtly deceptive here. Okay, verse 37 through the end of the chapter. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they could so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. So he's continuing to separate out those speckled and spotted animals, leaving the solid herd solid. Okay, He's being upright. He's sticking to his deal. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. 
Now, everyone has an opinion about the rods in the water trough. It's a very strange concept to us. And I don't know if anybody's right. I really don't know what's going on here. Some will say that the rods had a sap in them that got into the water and caused the animals to conceive spotted and speckled. Others say that it was the sight of the striped rod in front of their eyes that caused them to have striped babies. Seems strange. That's a long shot in my opinion. But it turns out Jacob attributes all of it to God anyways. So we can actually save a lot of time in deliberating the specifics about the rods because it's all attributed to God wanting to bless Jacob in the end. So the main point to take away from these verses is that God was blessing Jacob by allowing the animals to have predominantly spotted offspring. And all these animals would then belong to Jacob. So God's building up Jacob's herd. Chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable towards him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Laban's sons see their inheritance slipping away. And just like their father, gimme, gimme, gimme. So they start talking bad about Jacob. And Jacob notices that Laban isn't as nice to him as he was before. His countenance has shifted. The way he looks at Jacob has changed. So God urges Jacob to get out of there. And he does that, I'm sure in part, by the grudging looks and the sneers of Laban and his sons. Have you noticed that when we don't move in obedience to God, he will move us in our disobedience? If we don't get up and go when he's telling us to go, he will use means to push us out. You know, your neighbors looking at you grudgingly, uncomfortable situations. Sometimes it does take those uncomfortable situations to get us to move. Seems like that's partly what was in play here with Jacob. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and said to them. So Jacob is calling a secret meeting with his wives away from the hearing of Laban and his sons. And he says to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me, and you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all of the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Attributes this to God. Jacob said that Laban has changed his wages ten times. And that's saying that Laban, when he saw that the flocks were bearing speckled, he said, no, no, no. Never mind, you get the streaked ones, I keep the speckled ones. Then they started bearing streaked when God saw that th those would be Jacob's. He changed it. Then they bore streaked, like Laban said, no, 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 you get the other ones. You know, he keeps changing it up on Jacob. And that's what he means by he's changed his wages ten times. And he goes to explain that in the next few sentences. So whatever Laban said Jacob to take, God caused the herd to bear that kind of animal. And obviously Laban would be getting extremely frustrated with this turn of events. But it was exactly as Jacob said to Rachel and Leah, so God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He continues to explain to them what had happened. 
He said in verse 10, And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leapt upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. That was over 20 years ago at Bethel. Isn't God faithful? Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. He tells him again, get out of there. Your time there is done. God had revealed to Jacob through a dream that the herd was going to bear this way, the spotted, speckled, and streaked. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the rods he put in the troughs. You know, at this point, it is completely attributed to to God. Now, Jacob was fairly old at this point in our terms. He lives to be 175, I think. He was about 90 at this point. So he's lived a lot of life, but he's still got a lot in him. He's spent a considerable amount of his life tending flocks, watching the patterns of the animals, you know, observing. And he's seen many, many generations of animals be born. And I have a feeling that he knew something of what we know as genetics, he probably knew that there was a chance that those solid colored animals could bear speckled. He probably knew that that was a possibility. And so he wasn't pigeonholing himself out of a a deal completely, but he was trusting in God to do what he purposed in this situation, which is a great thing to see from Jacob. You know, that seems to be a struggle for this whole family lineage, just sitting and trusting. They always want to kind of have the last word. They, they want to push God's plans along themselves. It seems Jacob does well here. And notice that God doesn't even regard Haran as the land of his family anymore. Even though that's where Abraham traveled through, he stayed there for a while and then came to Canaan, God doesn't recognize Haran as his family land anymore. God treats his inheritance, the land of Canaan, as his family's land. That's really cool to see. It says, now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family, back to Canaan. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Jacob's wives recognize the fact that they're not going to be getting anything from their father as an inheritance. You know, and they're really concerned with the dowry. And of course, the dowry in this day, would have been a price paid to a bride's father for her. And it was a a bit of a trust fund, if you will. It would be held, in most cases, by the father in case something happened to the husband. Whether he deserted her, he passed away, something happened, that money from the dowry could be used to support the daughter. So it was an interesting little system of checks and balances. What did Jacob pay as a type of dowry for Leah and Rachel? His service, his time. So he didn't actually pay Laban in money, but we know that what Laban gained out of that service was incredible. It was immense. And here we learn that Laban has completely consumed all that wealth 
that Jacob had generated for him. We don't know what he spent all of this money on, but he obviously wasn't keeping it around for Leah and Rachel. He was not being responsible for them. For all these riches which God has taken from our Father are really ours and our children's. And they say, Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. It's a great thing when your wife confirms your leading. It's a great thing. Most of the time, she's going to say, well, are you sure that that's what God wants us to do? Have you prayed about it? Can we pray about it a little longer? But when she says, do it, you know that God is speaking. You know, Rachel and Leah have gotten front row seats to see how both Jacob and how their father handles situations. They've gotten to see both as they grew up under their father and now as they are wedded to Jacob. And just from the account we have here, it's easy to see that Jacob is much more gracious than Laban. They would have observed his conduct and they would have respected him all the more. And so they say, yeah, let's do it. Let's get out of here. Let's do what God is telling you to do. What a great thing it is. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Uh Uh-oh. So in these days, people would keep little carved idols in their homes, teraphims. And there would be many of them, you know, one for the weather, one for rain, crops, fertility, you name it. They had these little gods that they would seek favor from in these certain areas. Rachel is a chip off the old block. She goes back to her father's house and takes these idols, and she takes more than one of them. And of course, she doesn't tell her husband. She knows that he wouldn't approve of this. And she doesn't quite have a full grasp on Jacob's God yet. Obviously, she does not understand who Jehovah is because she seeks these little idols. I can't help but wonder if this is partly God's reasoning behind bringing Christ through Leah instead of Rachel. Leah seemed to be the more spiritually minded one, the one who better understood Yahweh. And that's just a conjecture. I I don't know. But it makes you think. And for the record... If someone can break in and steal your God, you've got the wrong God. You need to reevaluate there. But since those idols were how the family would be blessed, they would seek that blessing, Rachel was not just taking a little wooden figurine. She was stealing blessings from her father. That's how it would have been looked at. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. So Jacob packs up everything, and he just gets out of there. But he didn't tell Laban, who was away shearing his sheep, that he was leaving. And I'm sure it was just out of fear for how he would react. Uh, He wasn't the most stable of men And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. So it takes three days, Jacob being gone, for Laban to get news that he had left. And this is wise on Jacob's part, putting three days' journey between him and Laban. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. So Laban takes his brethren with him, pursues Jacob, 
for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So God actually reveals himself to Laban. He speaks to Laban in a dream. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? It's a bit dramatic, don't you think? We know that's not how that happened at all. Jacob had served Laban faithfully for seven years for each daughter. He hasn't carried them away like captives at the sword. That's very dramatic on Laban's part. His wives were no longer Laban's to care for, to take care of. You know, his wives belonged to him. And they were separated from their father, and they were now part of Jacob's household. 27, why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. You believe that? I'm not buying it. I don't think that Laban would have sent Jacob away with timbrel and harp. God told Jacob to get out of there because it was getting hostile. And surely God knew that Laban would hurt Jacob if given the opportunity. That's probably why he urged him so fervently to leave. And to preserve and protect Jacob and his family, God instructed them to flee. Now perhaps Jacob could have trusted God to work through Laban's hostility. Maybe he could have let him know, hey, I'm leaving. But he knew I'm sure he knew that Laban would not have complied. And that would have brought judgment on Laban and his household. I don't know, but I wonder if Jacob, in choosing to sneak out, was actually caring about Laban just a little bit. He didn't want God's judgment to be brought down on him. So he just left. He didn't even give Laban the opportunity to go against God. It's possible. 28, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. So Laban's still going on, getting on to Jacob. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. (laughs) Is it? But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And that's news to Jacob. Laban notices that some of his idols are missing. And the logical conclusion is that somebody in Jacob's party has stolen them. They left the same time that he left. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Obviously, he didn't know, because if he had known, he wouldn't have pronounced such a harsh sentence on the one who did it. Now, Jacob does know Laban pretty well at this point. After spending these 20 years in his service, he knows that these concerns he voices are not unfounded. Laban has demonstrated his ability to go back on his word. He's demonstrated that he's untrustworthy, as in the case of changing Jacob's wages with the flocks, in the case of subbing Leah for Rachel. You know, all these times, he is not trustworthy. And Jacob knows this well. 
And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. So he's rummaging around searching for these idols. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. So Laban is tearing through their stuff, trying to find his idols, but he couldn't find them because Rachel had stashed them in the camel's saddlebag, and she was sitting on them. And she comes up with quite a colorful reason why she can't stand up to honor her father. She said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. So she uses her period as an excuse for not standing up and greeting her father. Of course, it was really to hide the idols that she stole. Now Jacob looks around at the tents in disarray, all his belongings thrown around, and Laban still has nothing to bring against him. Still has nothing. And (laughs) Jacob comes a little unhinged here. He really lets it fly at Laban. Then Jacob was angry. He was wroth and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He knows Laban too well. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night when he came to him in that dream. He just lists out all these positive things that he's done for Laban and all the negative things that Laban has done to him. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Laban is effectively admitting to a stalemate. He's like, I claim ownership to all of these, but what can I do? They're with you. And so he concedes and requests a covenant, a peace treaty. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it, you can say this however you want, Jager Sahadutha. But Jacob called it Galid. Jager Sahadutha was Aramaic. Galid is basically the same word in Hebrew. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Now, this wasn't like these guys were exchanging friendship bracelets, saying besties for the resties. There was some hostility in this exchange. The idea is that while we're apart, may God be a witness between us. May he watch you while I can't. 
That's the kind of grit behind it. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And there was no indication that Jacob would do something like this, like afflict his daughters. He wasn't a violent guy. Uh, In fact, it's funny to think back on his tent-dwelling days with his mother. Uh, He was a very tame man. And we already talked about this, but we don't know if he even wanted more wives. The two maids came to him by way of his wives that he already had, and Leah came to him through deception, and Rachel was the one that he really wanted. So (laughs) Laban makes this kind of offhanded comment, but it's ironic because he's the reason that Jacob even has more than one wife. So it's kind of silly. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. This didn't prevent them from visiting one another although I don't think they would have wanted to. It was to prevent their passing over to the other side to do harm. It's like when siblings say, this is the line, you can't cross this line. That's what they're doing. They're saying, you can't cross this line. We're going to stay separate from now on. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their fathers judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And that was the custom. They would share a meal to commemorate this covenant. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. And when it says he kissed his sons and daughters... That's talking about his grandsons, his daughters, and his granddaughters. There was not a separate word for grandkids in this language. So that's what he's talking about. And Laban goes back to Haran and leaves Jacob and his family. So Laban drops out of the narrative from here. Thank goodness we're done with him. I'm going to take him back to Haran. And we continue to focus on Jacob and his family. However, as soon as this one obstacle is removed, Laban, another obstacle is reintroduced, Esau. I'm, I don't know if Jacob had forgotten about Esau or if he just didn't like to think about him. You know, we all have that one family member, right? Try not to think about him. <laughs> but as he's traveling back to his home to Canaan, he remembers, oh yes, last time I saw my brother, he was trying to kill me. So that's what we're going to see unfold in chapter 32. Now, just to wrap up what we saw this morning, Jacob, he's messed up. He's not perfect. We've seen him fumble time and time again. Same with all of his fathers. But of all his wranglings with Laban, we do see Jacob doing some things right. He seems to deal fairly with Laban, even though Laban's a bit of a tough character to work with. He deals fairly. God told him that he would be with him. God made that promise to him. God revealed to him in that dream, that he would bless the flock to bear the strange-colored animals. And Jacob trusted him. He diligently cared for the flocks. He held up his end of the bargain with Laban, and God blessed him for it. He didn't try to deceive and wiggle his way to prosperity this time. He faithfully fulfilled his duties, and he let God handle the blessing. And he was greatly rewarded for that. And it's great to see a, a man come full circle. You know, obviously he's not perfect. He's, 
certainly going to mess up again and again. But it's good to see some growth in him. And we saw it with Abraham. We saw it with Isaac. Isaac came back around. He started caring again for God's promises and the the spiritual things. And that's good to see. Good on Jacob this morning. If you would, please bow your heads with me and we'll close our study in a word of prayer.